Well, hello there, good evening, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky stuff. Now, a couple of things. First of all, last week I did say that we would get back to the great Carl Weathers, and we didn't. So uh, I'm going to be putting that obituary in here. I also said last week that this week we would be reviews heavy, and we're not. Because, as is the way with this sort of thing, something came up that I really want to talk about, about which more later. But first, the recent death of the actor Carl Weathers should not go unremarked here. Because, although he's perhaps best remembered by the general public as Apollo Creed from the Rocky movies, which I think it is fair to say are not generally considered part of the geek space, although there are some people who will totally geek out on the Apollo movies if you let them. Weathers was very much a part of the geek space. He wasn't just, in recent times, Grieve Carver in The Mandalorian, although he was brilliant in that role. He was, of course, Colonel Al Dillon in Predator, getting to do that iconic arm wrestle handshake thing that he does with Arnold Schwarzenegger's Dutch when the two first meet in the Central American rainforests. And like people like uh, Dave Cena and uh, Dave Bautista, he was another one of those people who went from a sporting background to a being in cool movies background. Uh, he started out pre-Apollo Creed, pre-Rocky, uh, he played in the National Football League, the NFL itself. He was a linebacker for the Oakland Raiders and um, he then moved to the BC Lions in the Canadian Football League, which, of course, does suggest he wasn't the brightest star of the NFL. But still, he did the thing. He was also the star of Action Jackson back in the 80s, which was one of only a few big budget films to feature a, a an African-American star. Uh, the only other one that really springs to mind immediately is um, Beverly Hills Cop. I suppose you could throw Lethal Weapon in there, but Danny Glover was very much the sidekick, really, to Mel Gibson, certainly in the first Lethal Weapon. Uh, you know, he was doing his bit for representation too. Really, I'll always remember him for Al Dillon in Predator. And... Look back fondly over his 80s action career. His death at 76 is quite simply too young. And he does leave a bit of a hole behind him. He'd grown, I think, uh, and you see this in Grief Carver, into a sort of not necessarily a vuncular figure, not necessarily a, a grandfatherly figure in, in kind of the geek, the geek sphere, but he was a reassuring presence. And I don't really think there's anybody who now comfortably fills that niche. So, Godspeed, Carl Weathers. You may have left the stage, but your performance will be eternal. And with that, we should perhaps move on to the main subject of the show this week, which is perhaps a little bit inside baseball, but I think it also highlights something that is becoming increasingly important to think about. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to talk to you about awards. Now, 
I am a child of the 80s. More specifically, I am one of the Gen X generation, which means I'm quite cynical about awards. I really am, particularly awards for things that are not clear. Awards in a sporting context are relatively straightforward, I think. Uh, higher, further, faster, baby, and you know, that's easy to demonstrate. Did you jump higher than the other guy? You get the gold medal. Did you run faster than the other guy? You get the gold medal. You get the idea. Awards in the context of the arts are significantly harder to quantify because it's all subjective, isn't it? Really. As I record this, we've just had the BAFTAs. And lots of people are a bit cross that Oppenheimer won loads of stuff, but its partner in last summer's little cinematic festival of Barbenheimer didn't win nothing. Now, I personally think that's ridiculous. In many ways, I'm speaking from a position of profound ignorance, which I know is not that unusual for me, but I haven't actually seen either movie. But I do have an opinion on the Barbenheimer thing, because I'm a person who was alive in the world last summer, and I saw the the effect that the Barbenheimer thing was having. I, I spend a lot of time under the stairs in a cinema, so I saw people going to these movies. And I saw some very, very masculine men wearing very sparkly pink outfits as they accompanied their girlfriends to see Barbie. And in that sense, I think it's fair to say that Barbie had a much more profound impact on the awareness of people. It was just more in people's lives. It was more a thing than Oppenheimer was. Does that make Barbie a better movie? I have no idea. Oppenheimer, on the other hand, is a, a biopic about a man whose work continues to have a profound effect on literally every aspect of the world. We now live under the shadow of nuclear annihilation, perhaps not as much as we did in the 80s, but still, you know, it is a fact now that should certain nations or even individuals because you know the rulers of these nations are individuals after all should they decide that they would quite like to annihilate whole nations at the push of a button they can do that the power to do that exists in a way that it didn't before Oppenheimer to use the phrase that has been attributed to him became death the destroyer of worlds Equally, I think it's fair to say that Oppenheimer is probably covering subject matter that's more important. A movie about a plastic fashion doll. Except, of course, that's not really what Barbie's about. And so, again, we come back to, well, you know, what? how do we judge this? And my point is that we don't need to. If you want to go and see Barbie, go and see it. If you want to go and see Oppenheimer, go and see it. If you enjoy one and not the other, that's fine. You do you. It doesn't really matter. And it's impossible to be definitive. It, clearly, it's impossible to be definitive because awards like the BAFTAs and the Oscars, they are constantly argued over. And people constantly say, oh, it's, it's completely unfair. It's ridiculous that so-and-so got an Oscar and so-and-so didn't. But equally, as somebody who's been tangentially involved in, in the winning of awards once or twice, 
they do make you feel good and they do have some positive ramifications. I, is the fact that Destination Venus, my little comic shop, was voted joint 13th best comic shop in the country going to make any difference to my sales? No, probably not. But did it give me a, a, just a nice little rosy feeling to know I was even in the running for the award? Yeah. Yeah, it, it made me feel good for a bit. There's value in that. And of course, if you actually win the thing, then that becomes something you can use for marketing purposes. You know, had I won, I would. you can bet your life that Britain's favourite comic shop would definitely be plastered all over my website and on my flyers and on my carrier bags and so on and so forth. Because of course it would. If you are an actor and you win an Oscar, being an Oscar-winning actor or actress probably does not hurt your chances of getting more roles. It certainly will help you in your pay negotiations. And of course, if you are in one of the roles that is less obvious than acting in a movie, if you get Best Director or you're the person behind the Oscar-winning special effects, that is significantly going to help you. So these things do have value. Which is why, although the process is always going to be a little bit arbitrary, because it's always, in the end, going to be about somebody else's opinion, it is important, I think, that criteria for success in these kinds of awards are at least consistent, transparent, fair, and, as part of being fair, applied equally to everyone. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings me to the debacle surrounding the 2023 Hugo Awards. Before we get into the 2023 awards and the issues that surround them, some of you might need a bit of a primer regarding what the Hugo Awards actually are. Because they're a big deal to me, but many people have not, in fact, ever heard of them. So, what are the Hugos? Well, I'm not going to go into a massive history of the Hugos here because partly we don't have time and partly it really is very inside baseball and you don't really need to know the, the, the all of the ins and outs. Basically, the Hugo Award is an annual literary award for the best science fiction or fantasy works and achievements of the previous year. They are given out at the World Science Fiction Convention, also known as Worldcon, and they are chosen by people who are members of that convention. Uh, the Hugo is pretty much considered, certainly in English language, science fiction, it's considered the premier award. It is the, the absolute pinnacle. It is the science fiction Pulitzer. And in many ways, it is designed to be completely corruption proof and completely within the control of the people. That is to say, the fans, the people who enjoy fantasy and science fiction, those people are the voices that should, according to the way the Hugo has been designed, be responsible for awarding victory to the winners in the various categories every year. Now, we're going to get to how that didn't necessarily go according to plan in 2023. But first, we need to think about, well, hang on, whoa, whoa, who are the fans who get to vote? Because really, not everyone who is a fan of sci-fi or a fan of fantasy gets a vote in the Hugos. 
in order to be able to vote, you have to be an attendee of the con or somebody who has bought attendance at the con. You don't actually have to turn up in person, but you do have to pay your convention fees, which at least is open and honest. I mean, can you just buy a Worldcon pass just so you can vote in the Hugos and not really bother with anything else at the con? Yeah, you can do that. Is it possible that that could be corrupted and, you know, a publisher, for example, could just buy a thousand passes to Worldcon to get a thousand votes in the Hugo so that the book published by the author they publish gets to win? Yes, they could, but nobody ever has, I don't think. Um, I, I think that the logistics of doing that would be prohibitive in any case. So it is people who care enough to want to go to Worldcon who get to vote on the Hugos every year. And in case you're thinking that Worldcon might be like Comic-Con, for instance, which is held in San Diego every year. And so Worldcon, like Comic-Con, is only available to people who can get there. And that therefore anybody going to the Hugos is likely to be somebody who can get to you know, somewhere in America. And therefore it's always going to skew towards Americans. You'd be wrong because Worldcon is exactly what it claims to be in that it is held in a different country every year. Uh, 2024, it's going to be in Glasgow. 2023, it was in Chengdu in China. And that seems to be the root of the problem because China is a country that has very different rules and a very different culture surrounding what is acceptable in print. And ultimately, it's that that has caused the problem with the 2023 Hugo Awards. But it's more complicated than you might think. There's been some mainstream media coverage of this, and it all seems to have revolved, as far as the mainstream media is concerned, around the fact that China is a censorship society and that because the Hugos were in China, some people who had written things that might be considered critical of China were excluded from the voting. And at face value, that is what happened. But I think I actually, having looked into this, I sort of object to that framing of the issue because that makes it sound like there was Chinese government intervention here, and there wasn't. Now, I am not saying that if what actually happened hadn't happened, I am not saying that there wouldn't have been Chinese government intervention. The point is that we will never know that because the organising committee took steps unprompted. The organising committee for the Hugos is American, and... Whether they took action because they are just paranoid, I don't know. But according to stuff that's yeah, it's now in the public domain, uh, Dave McCarthy, who was the head of the 2023 award selection, sent out an email um, last June, so June 2023, stating that because the Hugos were happening, quotes, in China, and the laws that they must operate under are, again, in quotes, different. 
the organiser should highlight anything of a sensitive political nature. So, he particularly asked that work that focused on China, Taiwan or Tibet or any other thing, topic, theme, idea that might be deemed sensitive needed to be, and again, I'm quoting now, highlighted so that we can determine if it is safe to put it on the ballot. Just pause. Think about that for a second. The guy in charge of organising the awards was telling people, before we actually accept nominations for something, before we give people at Worldcon the chance to vote on whether a piece of work should be given a Hugo Award, we just need to check it's safe and won't offend anybody. That's basically what you're saying. Now, there is no information anywhere that I can find that suggests there'd been any input from the Chinese government at all before he sent that. So that is an American, a Westerner, looking at China and saying, well, they're a bunch of authoritarian gits. So, so clearly there's going to be a problem. Let's get out in front of it, which I think is one heck of an assumption to make. Now, it might be a correct assumption. I don't know. But I would suggest quite strongly that if you felt that might be a problem, the thing to do is proceed as though the Hugos were going to be held anywhere else and put books on the ballot on their merit. And then if the Chinese government comes and says, we object to that book being up for an award, then there's a conversation you can have with your attendees, with your voters, and you can take a stand or you can not take a stand, but it will be transparent and public and in the open and people will know what's going on. That's the thing you can do. As, a, as an armchair commentator and an idealist, I would say that if they had done that and if the Chinese government had said, you can't have these books on your ballot because we don't like them, the only thing the Hugos could have done would be to say, well, then we're not doing them this year. And we're going to tell everybody why. And everyone who's on the ballot this year will be on the ballot next year when it's being held in Glasgow, where you can say what you like. And that would have been a principled stance. Now, I don't organise the Hugos and I don't know what the implications of that would have been. And again, we'll never know because that isn't what happened. What happened was a number of works that would have been on the ballot were not put on the ballot. And we're not talking about obscure stuff either. I mean, we're talking about writers like Neil Gaiman, who was pulled. Um, a writer called uh, Paul Weimer. Uh, uh, yes, there were some Chinese writers. Uh, Shirin J. Zhao uh, was also deemed ineligible as a finalist, in spite of the fact they'd, been, they'd got enough votes to be in the final, to be on the final ballot. They were not put on the final ballot. They were deemed ineligible. Well, that means the people who were deciding what was eligible had deliberately changed the rules. And that is not fair and it's not transparent. And it's not transparent because they didn't tell anybody they were doing that. It has been leaked. It did come out. And there are consequences. And, you know, do you know what? This is one of those times when I am both ashamed of the geek community the part, that section of the geek community that has done that thing, 
and and made that discrimination. But the response of the geek community, of the SF and fantasy community, to what has happened makes me proud to be part of it. It really, really does. There is a tradition that if you've got money left over at the end of a Worldcon, you gift that money to the organisers of the next Worldcon. They're called pass-along funds. And you know, we're not talking about insubstantial amounts of money here. I think this year the pass-along funding would be about 40 grand. Now, that's not as much money as it sounds if you're organising a massive event like a Worldcon. But, you know, it's it's not nothing, neither. So, you know, there's, there's that. Well, the organisers at Glasgow have made a, a very brief, but I think in the circumstances quite pointed, announcement, simply saying that the organisers of Worldcon 2024 in Glasgow have unanimously voted to refuse any funds from the Worldcon held in 2023 in Chengdu. They seem to be recognising that this is tainted money and, you know, they don't want anything to do with it. Good for them, because do you know what? Walking away from 40 grand, that's not an easy thing to do, I suspect, and it will have caused them something of a headache. That was a hefty chunk of change they were expecting to have and which they now will not have. That is going to cause them problems, but they've accepted those problems because it's the right thing to do. Then there's the people who actually won Hugo's in 2023. Um, they're in a really horrible position. Maybe they'd have won anyway. If the people that were removed from the ballot had had remained on the ballot, maybe the people who won would have won anyway, but they will never know. So what do you do? Well, again, somebody making me proud to be part of the geeky community. Adrian Tchaikovsky, who is the author of the Children of Time series. Uh, I enjoyed tremendously, uh, and we have a signed copy of uh, one of Tchaikovsky's books in the shop, as it happens. He has made a statement which goes as follows. When the Children of Time books won the 2023 Hugo for Best Series, I was overjoyed. The Hugos have been a major feature of the genre fiction landscape for decades. It would be a signal honour to be shortlisted for one, let alone to win. Over the last month or so, a cascade of information has been released or uncovered, demonstrating that those responsible for administering the award of the 2023 Worldcon, held at Chengdu, China, took a variety of actions that significantly distorted the result. For details, I'll direct you to Abigail Nussbaum's writing here, and there is a link to that in Tchaikovsky's statement and in the show notes to this show, which is up to date as at the time of this statement. However, the TLDR is 1. Several works receiving large numbers of votes were ruled ineligible for unstated reasons, which from leaked emails appears to be the US-based administrators unilaterally deciding that they might cause political offence. 2. A number of Chinese language nominations appear to have been entirely disallowed. The second, in what seems to be a mass disenfranchisement of Chinese voters, means that the composition of the shortlist, as they were presented to be voted on, was entirely unreliable, with an unknown number of Chinese nominees denied their chance at contending. Based on this information, I cannot consider myself a Hugo winner and will not be citing the 2023 award result in my biographical details or on this site. 
And that statement is on uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky's website at adriantchaikovsky.com. Links in the show notes. Now, that's significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, it is the dream of any science fiction writer to win a Hugo. So to be put in a position where you have to say, I can't have it. I can't accept it. I can't cite this. This is tainted. If that, that's a horrible position to be put in. And it takes a great deal of moral character to do that. I am very, very proud of Tchaikovsky. That's patronising, but you know what I mean. Um, I hope that's the decision I would make were I in his shoes. But there's a bigger consequence to this. As I understand the rules, if you win a Hugo, you cannot be nominated in that category of Hugo again. It's you know nobody wins the Hugo Award ten years in a row because once you've won it, you can't have it again. And it's one of the things I like about the awards in many senses. But that means if you do what Tchaikovsky has done and say, yeah, thanks, but uh, it doesn't doesn't count really, does it? And I won't be citing it. He will never now be able to call himself a Hugo Award winner because. The award he's won, he feels is tainted, and he's not going to be allowed another. So it doesn't matter what he does now. He's never going to have the chance to, to put Hugo award-winning author on his dust jacket. That's a real shame and a real sacrifice that this guy has been forced to make. And I think anyone who's read his work would say that Tchaikovsky is deserving of this honour. Now, you can decide for yourself because, I mean, you you can meet him if you like. Uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky is one of four fantasy writers who will be at an event uh, hosted at Harrogate Library in a few weeks' time uh, and organised by our friends at Imagined Things. And uh, more about that event next week. But if you're impatient, uh, there will be links in the show notes. And uh, you can always go and speak to our friends at Imagined Things down at the bottom of Montpellier Hill in Harrogate and uh, find out more about it. You, you should go. It'll be great. I'm going. So the whole Hugo Awards thing, really, has been properly, properly disastrous. And it seems, as I say, to have been entirely based on assumptions made by people in America about what the Chinese government will do, which is no way to organise a thing, in my view. Uh, as I say, the 2024 Hugos will be voted on at Worldcon 2024, which I think is the 82nd Worldcon. I think it's at Worldcon 82. Anyway, uh, Worldcon 2024 will be in Glasgow. Uh, links to that in the show notes as well. You can go if you like. Uh, I might, actually. Anyway, so that's that. And as I said, I'm not sure whether it's a, a bad news geek story given the shenanigans around some of the Hugo committee, or whether it's a good news geek story, because so many people, having discovered what's gone on, have behaved so honourably. I don't know. I just wish it hadn't happened. And with that, let us go and talk of other things. Since we're being news-heavy this week, let's talk about AI. Shall we? Yeah, let's do that, because AI is constantly in the news. And I think what we're 
now beginning to see is AI companies and companies who try to use AI entering the find out phase of the fool around and find out parody. And yes, I know that fool around is not the phrase, but this is a family show and I'm sure you can work out which F one is arounding in the original phrase. Anyway, um, you may remember last year, a, an American lawyer got himself into all kinds of hot water because he presented a case to a court citing examples, actually on behalf of an airline as it goes, citing examples of case law which had just been made up by AI. Uh, you may remember that. He got in all kinds of trouble. Well, we're a year on and another airline has got itself in trouble because of AI. And, and I'm sorry, I'm so, so sorry, but this is objectively hilarious. I genuinely hope it serves as a proper warning to any company who might want a penny pinch in this way. Because, oh boy, does this ever serve them right? Listen to this, this is great. I love this. Okay, what happened is there was a guy, I won't, I won't name him here. But he'd been bereaved. His, his grandmother had died. And uh, he visited the website of Air Canada on the day of his grandmother's death um, to book a ticket to get Toronto, where his grandmother had lived, so that, you know, he can go to the funeral and, and do the things you have to do when a close family member dies. And when buying that ticket... He interacted with an AI-powered chatbot. Of the guy, we see these things all the time on websites now. And if you ever think that you can rely on them, well, take this as a cautionary tale. Uh, the chatbot told him, and this is a direct quote, and we know it's a direct quote because the gentleman in question took a screenshot. Okay, so this is definitely what the chatbot told him. And I quote, if you need to travel immediately or have already travelled and would like to submit your ticket for a reduced bereavement rate, kindly do so within 90 days of the date your ticket was issued by completing our ticket refund application form. Based on that, he thought, OK, fine, I'll do Because obviously, if you buy tickets on short notice, they're going to cost more. So he took the, the chatbot at its word and he booked full fare tickets to and from Toronto and then... As he had been instructed, he contacted Air Canada to get a refund of you know the amount he'd overpaid based on the fact that he was entitled to a, a reduced rate. And he was told that because he'd already taken the, the journey, the bereavement rates did not apply. They could not be replied retroactively, in spite of the fact that contra contradicts what he was told by the chatbot. Um. And they said, you know, this is explained on our website, but it's not the part of the website he was looking at. And at no point had he been directed to that information on their website. So he sent a copy of the screenshot I've just quoted from to Air Canada, who said that, yeah, OK, that's misleading. And undertook to make sure that the chatbot was sort of reprogrammed, as it were, so that it didn't make that mistake again. But it did not offer to give him back the money that he believed he was owed. So he sued him. And Air Canada 
argued that you can't sue us. We are not liable for information provided by our agents, servants or representatives. And, you know, that is in their terms of service. So that, you know, if you go to the Air Canada ticket desk in an airport, I've not been to an airport for ages. I don't know if that kind of thing exists, but let's just say they do. You go to a, a ticket desk and you say, hello, Air Canada representative. I would like a ticket to wherever. If that human person chooses to lie to you, to defraud you uh, for their own personal benefit, Air Canada, under their terms of service, can't be held liable for that. And that's actually reasonable because that's a crime committed by a human person who has done it not on behalf of Air Canada, but for their own enrichment. And it's meant to protect Air Canada from, let's say, you know, the sort of thing where, you know, you go to a human and you say, I'd like a ticket and they give you something that looks like a ticket and you pay them cash for that ticket and they pocket the cash and smile and keep that cash for themselves. And then you get to the the, the boarding gate and you discover the ticket's not real. That's theft and fraud on the part of the person who did that, not on the part of Air Canada. And those terms of service are supposed to protect Air Canada from that kind of thing. But now they're saying that covers, yeah, if this robot voice that we have on our website does that to you, in spite of the fact this is not a living thing that has agency, this is just a, an algorithm that crunches stuff, then that's we wouldn't, that's not what Dan was. Our chatbots are sentient creatures who make their own decisions. And it was on that basis that they were saying, yeah, we'd have to give this guy nothing. Which, I have to be honest, I find extraordinary. Now, they didn't, in fact, explain why they believed that to be true. They just stated it as a fact. Um, and the court was not particularly sympathetic to Air Canada's case. Uh, it was pointed out. Well, first of all, what you're telling him is that the bit of the website he was looking at was wrong. And if he'd looked at a different bit of the website, the right information was available. Therefore, it's on him. Well, you've got it's your website. So you've got con contradictory information in different parts of your website. Even assuming he'd seen both pieces of information, which you can't know, even assuming that was the case, which one is he supposed to believe? How does he know that one bit of your website is more trustworthy than another bit of your website? And in any case, your chatbot is a machine that you own. It is not a person that you employ. Therefore, it is not responsible for its own actions because it's a machine. It has no sentience. It makes no decisions. It knows no information. It's a bit of software that goes and gets bits of information that you as a company have made available to it and regurgitates them uncritically because it has no understanding of what it's saying. And you'll be surprised, I'm sure, to discover that the court did not find in a Canada's favour. And for goodness sake, uh, and, and this, I think, is one of the big problems with AI. It's not that AI is rubbish. It isn't. OK, that we have chatbots that can do this 
and interact with you in a way that is actually easy and convenient and nice. That's remarkable. But they're not people. They don't think. They're just regurgitators of information. And it's a basic thing in computing. I'm old enough that I remember computing when it was a relatively new Wild West thing in the late 70s and early 80s. And even then, the maxim by which everyone who was learning to code and learning to, 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 to create computer programs was already working by was garbage in, garbage out. Which is to say, a computer, however powerful, is only as good and only as accurate as the information you give it. And it seems that AI has made some people forget that. That was exactly the same assumption that the the lawyer from last year's story made. He stated under oath when he was called out on this, it simply had not occurred to him that the machine was capable of giving incorrect information. He just assumed that because this information was coming from a computer, it must be right. And Air Canada have done this. They have assumed that because the technology is labelled artificial intelligence, that it actually is intelligent and that as such, it is responsible for its actions. Well, it isn't and it isn't. AI is not intelligent in the way that we, as living humans with intelligence, would understand that. When ChatGPT writes a paragraph of language for you, it doesn't know what it said. It's putting things together algorithmically so that it knows that word X is probably a good word to go after word Y because it's seen it written in that context before. It doesn't actually know that. Now, as we are at the same time, and over the last few weeks we've reported on some of this, entering a phase where companies and individuals who had their intellectual property stolen by generative AI scraping are starting to sue for that. And AI companies like ChatGPT are having to admit that if they have to pay for using copyrighted material to train their AI algorithms on, then they don't have a business model. They, you know, they can't make money. And as the thieves who use generative AI to rip off other people's artwork and other people's writing for their own benefit, are discovering that they can't copyright that, so they can't make money off it. As all of these things are happening, I think we're beginning to see um, a slightly more realistic attitude towards AI. The tech bros are still giving it the full hyperbole. Uh, there was a guy tweeting like last week or the week before about how amazing it was going to be when we reached a phase with AI where nobody ever watched the same movie as anybody else because everyone would just sit down in front of a screen and say, I want to watch a movie about a barbarian hero who murders a dragon and falls in love with a princess at the end. And then an individual movie based on your prompt appears before you, generated by AI. Because wouldn't that be amazing? And the entire internet said, no, that sounds awful. We like having shared experiences. We like going and watching the same movie as somebody else and then maybe disagreeing with people about it. 
we like that. That's culture and, you know, living and stuff. And we don't want to not have that anymore. And I think that underlined why AI is not in the end going to go in the way it's being pushed. Because the tech bros, the people who don't really engage with real people and who don't have any real understanding of the world or anything, their vision for what AI can and should do is based entirely on that lack of human interaction and a failure to understand what the worth of human creativity actually is. But most people, most people do understand that and don't want content that's been churned out by uh, some AI sausage making machine. Most people want art, entertainment, creativity, and certainly at the moment, there is no sign that any kind of current or expected AI has that capacity or will have that capacity. I'm happy to die on this hill, actually. There is no AI currently that can make art. There isn't. There is no such thing as AI art. You can get an artificial intelligence algorithm to make you a picture, but it's not art. I think the, 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 the best illustration of this, or the best explanation for this, that I've heard, um, and I wish I could remember who'd said it, but I, li- I was listening to, of all things, Today in Parliament on Radio 4. And they had coverage from a uh, select committee about AI. And they had a film director. Oh, oh, for the life of me, I can't remember his name or what he directed. But anyway, and he was saying, look, AI is coming. We can't do anything about that. And it will probably get to be used in post-production of movies. You know, we might change an actor's expression. That AI can do that. And we, you know, a director might choose to have an AI do that. But are we going to have movies made entirely by AI? No. And he said that that won't happen because you need the human soul. Whatever intangible thing that is, whether that's a spiritual thing or a psychological thing, that thing that makes us human is what we want to see in our art. And I think I agree with him on that. And at the moment, there is no sign that whatever that thing is, there is no sign that that thing is going to be something that machines are going to be able to do any time soon. So I have a prediction. In fact, uh, you may remember, and I, I don't think I've ever really covered them on here because they were such a flash in the pan. But you may remember NFTs were a big thing a while ago. A year, 18 months ago, everybody was like banging on about NFTs. They've gone. Some people made some money. Most people involved lost a shed load of money. And, you know, nobody cares anymore because they were the solution to a problem that didn't exist. They were a solution to a problem that only existed in the minds of the people who invented NFTs. Uh, The same is 
less true, but still a bit true, about cryptocurrency. It's not replacing actual fiat currencies because it's the answer to a question that most people aren't asking. Now, if the question you're asking is, how do I move my illegally obtained money around the world without anyone being able to track it? That may be the answer to that question. Um, yeah, if your, answer, your question is, how do I launder my ill-gotten gains? Cryptocurrency is very definitely an answer to that question. But that's not a question most people are asking. And I think AI is like that. Most people are not saying, oh, I'd really love to see a movie that nobody else would ever watch or enjoy. I don't think anybody else is saying that. You know, people don't want the AI that is being sold to them. But, you know, I'll reiterate, this is not actually an attack on AI as a concept. AI is being used in incredibly useful ways, quietly and without fuss. There are applications for the current level of AI that are hugely beneficial to humanity and they're being applied. So my criticism is not of AI as a, as a, as a concept. My criticism is of the way, the, the way AI is being used and promoted by people who I contend have no real understanding of anything, really. And I think, to an extent, things like the Air Canada judgment are going to mean that in a year's time we're talking about AI about as much as we're currently talking about NFTs. I think it will just have gone away except for the people who are using it in ways that actually answer questions people are actually asking. And that's quite good really isn't it? I think so. I mean we will see seen Terminator 2 and um, it does seem there have been reports that when people have pitted artificial intelligences against each other in sort of virtual war games uh, they do seem to go to the let's nuke everybody now option really rather quickly so it could be that the movies war games and Terminator were not too far off so let's hope it doesn't come to that. We will obviously be covering AI in the future. Uh, it is an exciting technology as well as a scary technology. Like all technology, it is objectively neutral. It's how it's used that will be good or bad. So we'll see. Anyway, time for more positive news. And um, so we've mentioned Neil Gaiman once already in this show. He uh, was deemed ineligible for a Hugo this year. Uh, but you can't keep a creator like Neil Gaiman down. And um, the Gaiman juggernaut continues. Uh, there is news this week that um, Dark Horse and uh, Mark Bernardin are going to be making a comic adaptation of Neil Gaiman's novel and Nancy Boys. Uh, and this is coming again on the heels of the news that the 2005 novel by Neil Gaiman uh, is already being turned into a TV series by Amazon. Now, obviously, Gaiman has a relationship with Amazon already. He is showrunner on the Good Omens TV show, uh, which is based on the novel Good Omens, which was co-written by Gaiman and the late, great 
Terry Pratchett. Um, and Nancy Boys uh, was a New York Times bestseller. It won the Locus and British Fantasy Awards and was hugely critically acclaimed at the time. The book tells the story of a kind of nobody figure, really. Um, a guy called Charlie Nancy, who leads an incredibly boring life in London until he discovers two things. His recently dead father was not, in fact, a regular person, but he was, in fact, a Nancy, the trickster god of African folklore, and that he has a twin brother that he's never met. These two discoveries begin a reality-breaching odyssey of jealous gods, sibling rivalry, murder, and the sinking realisation that being a god is more trouble than it's worth. It's a brilliant book. I loved it when it first came out. Uh, if you've read uh, American Gods or seen the show American Gods, also available on Amazon, I believe, you may have seen the character of Anansi turn up there, although whether it's the same Anansi is a question. I'm excited for the TV show, but I'm also excited for the comic. Um, Bernard and Game have known each other for ooh, maybe 20 years. Uh, they met when uh, Bernardin was an editor at Entertainment Weekly, uh, covering the comics beat. Uh, and obviously Gaiman, 20 years ago, was probably a little bit better known as a comics writer than he was as anything else. Although by the early 2000s, he had already moved in to film and TV and stuff. Um, but Bernardin, uh, who is an African-American man, he also says he's really looking forward to, to getting to play with African folklore in a contemporary setting. Um, and I'm quoting now, it's getting to play with cultural specificity in a, with a black story that does not require the standard black story tropes. There is no pain, no tragedy. There is joy and fear, but not one whiff of slavery. It's about a man whose life is far bigger than he could have imagined and how he deals with that. And it's funny. It's romantic. It's a gift to play in this world. And from um, an Eisner-nominated writer like Bernardin, that's high praise. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited for this. It's a great book. Uh, the TV adaptation, I am really looking forward to. The comics adaptation... Comics is such an interesting medium for adaptation. Uh, there has previously been uh, an adaptation of Gaiman's American Gods, which I will be honest, I did not particularly enjoy. Uh, but there's also a comics adaptation of his short story, Snow Glass Apples, adapted by Colleen Duran, um, which is basically the original short story is Gaiman's sort of slightly twisted take on the Snow White mythology. And it's, it's, it's as brilliant as you would imagine it is because it's Gaiman. Uh, Colleen Duran's adaptation into comics just adds something that I don't think you could have done with a TV adaptation or a movie adaptation. Um, and does something that the prose of Gaiman's original story couldn't do. And Now, if they can get that into the Anansi Boys comics, that, I think, would be a remarkable thing. So really looking forward to it. You're going to hear more about this. Uh, and I, although, although I do have one slight quibble with the whole thing. Um, I've known Gaiman's work for a long time. 
I first came across Neil Gaiman as a writer of comics in the very, very early 90s, pre-Sandman. And I love his comics work. I will maintain to my dying day that whilst it may not be the pinnacle of his career, Sandman as a body of work, the comic series, the 75 issues of Sandman, as a body of work, will always be the best thing that Neil Gaiman ever wrote. And that he did that in his 20s is breathtakingly annoying, but that's anyway, that's, that's, that's just my petty jealousy. The truth is, I love his novels. I love his film and TV work. And I love the comics adaptations of the things that he has written for other medium. But I really want to see some Neil Gaiman comics. Not adaptations of his work into comics, but actual comics that Neil Actual Gaiman actually wrote to be comics. So when I see other people making comics out of work that Gaiman created for other media, and when I see Gaiman devoting himself to media that aren't comics, that makes me a bit sad. And I know that's spoiled and selfish of me, but what can I tell you? I'm spoiled and selfish. But, you know, expect more, is what I'm saying. Uh, on this, uh, I will certainly be reviewing the Anansi Boys TV show when it finally drops on Amazon, and you will be hearing about the comics adaptation as well. And if you have not read Neil Gaiman's Anansi Boys, what have you been doing? It is available as an audiobook. Uh, you can purchase a copy of the actual physical book uh, from all good bookstores. Here in Harrogate, I would point you at Imagined Things at the bottom, bottom of uh, Coldbath Road. And because it's a Neil Gaiman title, uh, it's the kind of thing that we also keep in stock here at Desties. So, uh, you know, you can ask me for it too if you want. But now I think this is probably a good place to end the news-heavy discussion section of this week's show. Uh, we don't have long left. Uh, we have, in fact, as I talk to you now, about five and a half minutes of the show to go. And so I do want to give you just a little bit of homework. Next week, we are planning to do something that I've mentioned before and not done, and I've been planning to do for flipping ages. And that is to explore the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That is to say, to really take a deep dive into humanity's search for not just life, but intelligent life elsewhere in the galaxy and beyond. To be clear, not are flying saucers real, but actually, what is the likelihood that, uh, that life exists beyond Earth? What kind of life could that be? What is the likelihood that there would be intelligence that we could understand beyond Earth? Where might we find that? How would we know? And is it a good idea even to look? That's your homework. I want you to think about that. And ask yourself that question. The great science fiction author, Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote many, many books around the question of, are we alone? Once said, 
that one of the two following things must be true. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. And that both possibilities are equally terrifying. I think he was right about that. But it is such a geeky question, isn't it? How much science fiction is dependent on the idea that there are aliens? Where would Star Wars be without aliens? Where would any, you know, where would Star Trek be without aliens? Even the cerebral science fiction, 2001, where's that without the idea of aliens and alien influence on Earth? And that's before we get to all the nonsense conspiracy stuff about, ooh, must have been aliens what built the pyramids and all of that. I want you to just, just have a think. Where do you stand on aliens? If you've got a firm view either way, let me know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Do you agree with the physicist Carl Sagan, who was behind the gold discs that are on the side of the Voyager space probes that give details of life on Earth and directions on how to find us in the hope that alien life will one day find that and come and visit? Or do you agree with Professor Stephen Hawking, who said that it was reckless to send messages to potential alien intelligences elsewhere, because if they were to come and visit, our history suggests that they would not be friendly, that there have been very few examples, if any, on our planet of a more technologi technologically advanced civilization meeting with a less technologically advanced civilization that did not end very badly for the less advanced civilization. And to be clear, were aliens to come and see us now, they would definitely be much more technically advanced than we are. So are we putting ourselves at risk by hunting for extraterrestrial intelligence and drawing attention to ourselves in that way? That's what we're discussing next week. And I would love, as I say, to have heard some of your ideas before we do that. So, again, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is where to stand all of your ideas about that and anything else you might have to say about the show. If you have comments, uh, rebuttals, additional information, or just ideas about things you'd like to see the show discuss in the future, give us a shout. Um, quick reminder, you're too late if you want to apply to be an exhibitor at Thought Bubble now, but you can still get tickets. Tickets are on sale and will remain on sale all year over at www.thoughtbubblefestival.com. So go and check that out and keep checking the Thought Bubble website because the guest list is only just beginning and it's it's always exciting to watch those guests be announced. So keep your eye on that. We obviously will be covering that uh, for the rest of the year and we're hoping to announce the launch of a couple of initiatives that are Thought Bubble adjacent, shall we say, uh, over the next few weeks. So keep your ears open for that as well. But for now, that is it. Once again, Time's Winged Chariot has not only drawn near, but it has overtaken us. And consequently, we are out of time. Speaking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production, proudly made in Yorkshire, and we will be back next week. Until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. 
Stay safe, stay sane, and above all else, just stay geeky. <laughs>